0: This is Book Speaks and Beyond, where we will bring you provocative music and engaging interviews from music artists, authors, historians, and others barely acknowledged by the mainstream media. I'll be your host, Taj. Today, I'm talking with Lauren Brooke Eisen about her informative book entitled Inside Private Prisons. An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. More than 100,000 of the over 2 million incarcerated Americans are held in private prisons in 29 states and federal corrections. Private prisons are criticized for making money off mass incarceration to the tune of $5 billion annually. From divestment campaigns to boardrooms to private immigration detention centers across the Southwest, Lauren Brook Eisen examines Private Prisons Through the Eyes of Inmates, Their Families, Correctional Staff, Policymakers, Activists, Immigration and Custom Enforcement Employees, Undocumented Immigrants, and the Executives of America's Largest Private Prison Corporations. This book is a blueprint for policymakers to reform practices and for concerned citizens to understand our changing carceral landscape. Lauren Brooke Eisen is Senior Counsel to the Justice Program at NYU Law School's Brennan Center. There, she focuses on changing financial incentives and the criminal justice system. Laura Book Eisen, welcome to Book Speaks and Beyond. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you. So this book is very eye-opening. What compelled you to write this? What does this book set out to answer?
1: This book focuses on the intersection of profit and incarceration, one of the most raging debates out there. And I wanted to write this book because I wanted to find out what does it mean for a for-profit company to manage jails and prisons? Is it legal to delegate such a core government duty? Is it moral to do so? Do private prisons save money? And even if they do, does that validate the industry? And these were the questions that the book examines. Perhaps the most important question is how we got to the point where a major public policy is delegated to large corporations. So after 30 years of intense debate, this book endeavors an even-handed and fair-minded look at an industry that raises important and profound questions about economic development, morality, state responsibility, and the nature of punishment itself, and ultimately what does our nation's increasing reliance on the private prison industry since the 1980s mean for the American justice system.
0: Yeah. So before we get a little deeper, some people may not even be familiar with what a private prison is. What is a private prison and what caused the so-called need for private prisons?
1: So private prisons are, when we talk about private prisons, corporations own and operate these facilities. So sometimes a corporation may just own the real estate and lease the prison back to government. In most situations, the corporations will own the real estate and also manage the prison. And when we talk about private prisons, there are correctional officers who are not government employees, but they are employees of these corporations themselves. So the two biggest private prison operators in the United States are... An org, uh, a company called CoreCivic. It used to be Corrections Corporation of America and it just rebranded last year. Hmm. Its new name is CoreCivic and the Geo Group. And these two corporations are publicly traded on the stock market and they're very profitable. Uh, Geo Group and CoreCivic together earned a combined 4.3 billion in 2016. Wow. There are other large corporations that own and run prisons in this country and how we ended up relying on these corporations was a big part of the the book's inquiry and the book looks at where these corporations emerged and how policymakers started to rely on them and ultimately how these corrections um, companies became so entrenched in american corrections and detention today
0: hmm It seemed like, um, kind of reading the book, a lot of it came around the 1960s. Why? What was so particular about that period of time?
1: So what happened in the 1960s was that um, you know, crime was still relatively low at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this was after the Vietnam War, and... You know, our, when we look at the history of corrections, we have pockets of time where the correctional, um, policies and stance was focused on rehabilitation. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, rehabilitation and, um, working with individuals who had violated, um, criminal justice laws was front and center when we talked about how um, people were treated behind bars. Um, there were a couple of things that happened. You know there was there were riots at, at prisons across the country, um, specifically, there was you know the Attica prison riot. Mm-hmm. um there were riots on the west coast. And those garnered a lot of um, national headlines and attention. And our country, um, for for many reasons, um, started to become more punitive, more draconian. Um, crime started to increase, policymakers couldn't win election unless they were seen as tough on crime, Uh, the media started capitalizing on the fear of so many people um, that crime rates were going up, and we slowly moved towards um, more draconian and punitive policies, and what happened in the mid-1980s was that by that point, about three-quarters of states were under some sort of court order to reduce their... Um, the number of people behind bars and policymakers couldn't be seen as um, soft on crime. They wouldn't win election. You know, anything short of tough on crime was seen as a kiss of death in political campaigns. And the overcrowding of state facilities really opened the door for these corporations to come in and um, contract with the government to run these prisons. So, at the time, um, you know they were fairly new, and it was seen as this ex- experiment, and a lot of policymakers thought, well, the government's doing a terrible job of of um, owning and running these prisons um, you know there were unsafe conditions at prisons all across the country um there were killings, there were riots in Tennessee um, you know four Tennessee prisons um, you know buildings had been burned um Guards had taken people, um, you know, uh, incarcerated individuals had taken guards hostage. Um, And so what happened was a company called Corrections Corporation of America um, worked with investors, and they thought, well, if the government's doing such a bad job of running prisons, maybe we can do a better job. And that's really how they emerged.
0: Mm. Yeah, because I think around the time this is like, Maybe more in the eighties. Privatization became like something big, you know. Government couldn't really do what it had to do, so everybody kind of believed that, you know, if it's private, things are privatized, it can probably flow better. Um, I, I think it's kind of important to talk about how private prisons are paid. Can you lay this out for us?
1: Yes. So the way that they are paid is that the government um, contracts. So the government. Um, provides the funding to prisons based on how many people they incarcerate. Now, the contracts can look different depending on if it's a federal contract, a state contract, Um, but for the most part, these corporations are paid per inmate. Um, But the the contracts, again, are pretty complicated. So they may get paid a certain amount for, you know, up to – um forty percent capacity, and then um, you know more or less if they if they're filled over a certain capacity, but what's really interesting and um, when we talk about the way that private prison corporations are paid, there's this perverse incentive that you know advocates across the country are pretty um, you know fired up about because. The way some of these contracts are written um, actually incentivize more people sent behind bars. And what I'm referring to are these guaranteed bed occupancy contracts. Mm. So, for example, there is an immigrant detention facility that's owned by Kort Civic in South Texas. And Kort Civic, this private company, gets paid as if it is 100% full,
0: <laughs>
1: even if it's not.
0: How's that possible and
1: <laughs> and if you think about the incentives there, um, a lot of state contracts have the same incentive. A lot of the state prisons in Arizona that are privatized um, have those contracts with the private companies and mm-hmm. so when policymakers and directors of corrections are looking at correctional populations, they have a you know they're already paying for those beds, so there's less incentive to look at how to downsized prison population
0: so so knowing that they there's this guaranteed paid regardless of the occupancy what is the correlation between private prisons and mass incarceration in a sense it seems like it's you got to constantly feed that 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 system right so there is there a, Mm -hmm. a real direct connection between those two
1: and that is that really gets to the heart of this book, and, and that's a question the book asks over and over. Um, what is the relationship to mass incarceration and these um, for-profit prison companies? So the book ultimately finds that mass incarceration would have existed with or without these private prisons. Mm. Um, but at the same time, these corporations didn't sit idly by uh, and just watch this happen. And the book points to a lot of places in history where the private sector was intimately involved in creating policies that were more draconian. So Mm -hmm. the book examines what the role of these corporations was in drafting model legislation at American Legislative Exchange Council meetings um, where they actually drafted um, draconian punitive legislation that a lot of the states ultimately uh, adopted. And, of course, there are lobbyists who work for these corporations, who um, speak to federal policymakers, state policymakers. They take correctional officers to dinner, um, talking to them, asking them what the you know, projections look like in their states. So while mass incarceration would have existed even without these corporations, their very existence has perpetuated higher prison populations. And I think what's very important for today and why um, why the book is important is because the idea of these corporations continuing to be so entrenched in American corrections makes it more difficult to start to downsize prison populations. And that's both at the state level, the federal level, and, and even when we talk about immigration detention. Yeah, and the book also looks beyond just these corporations that own and operate prisons. And mm-hmm. there's a chapter in the book called the prison industrial complex. Yes, and those are all of the corporations that profit off of people behind bars, and even profit off of people who might be in the community but under some sort of um, community supervision as well. And all of these corporations that are so entrenched in, um, you know, profiting off of People who are um, either behind bars or part of the correctional supervision in this country, um, you know, there's certainly a force that makes it harder to um, de incarcerate.
0: We're going to stop right here and take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
2: Uh, 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 hey, Khalif, another soul lost to grief, another black cross to pray, then back at it off the lane, something gotta mean more, somebody gotta pay, why I gotta be the poor, for me to live free, why I gotta be a war, I mean color mean it always gotta be a door, R.I.P. Khalif, he was 16 off the streets, stood tall, no cop in the play, no bail, no option B, whole nigga nightmare, truth can't help but the truth right there, plead my case or the judge might care, but they keep saying I gotta wait, hold up, wait, Hey. R.I.P. R- Khalifa. Who next? Will it be me? Will I get to hear it all on TV? Jay-Z soundtrack with the CG. How many more like you got to fight through? How many more like you didn't make it? Speak to you and everybody won't like you. But I'm wrong when I burn it up and take shit. R.I.P. Khalifa. Three years they stole. Two of those you was in a hole. Innocent with no tri for parole. Long as you behave, they say you grow. All from a bag, they say you stole. And if you just say you did, you go fuck that hey r-i-p-khalif protest ain't mad protest say us too my nigga protest say fuck you my nigga, fuck you, my nigga. You, you say it's okay to fight back but just not like that just not like my, that. my people go with the hype at yep just like that yep, just like that khalif could have been me shit khalif is me khalif's gone now but i'm praying that khalif is free something gotta give but the whole thing just might give out this song is dedicated to the stories that the innocent ones we never will hear about much love. The judge told me just take the time server you go home today and say I didn't
0: do If you like Book beats and Beyond, the biggest thing that you can do is share. Share that Books, Beats, and Beyond exists with your friends, with your families. Share it on social media, retweet, whatever. just share the information because if you like it, your friends will probably like it as well. And if you do this already, thank you so much you talked about how there's private prisons all over this country and there could be whole towns where most of the economy is because of that private prison. Can you talk about that?
1: So the book examines the idea of prisons as a way to increase the economic development of small rural towns across the country. And the examination is broader than just private prisons. Um, You know, prisons for decades have been seen by many in rural America as a tool for economic development. Um, but the book specifically also takes a look at some private prisons and all of the varied issues that a private prison um, coming to a small town um, bring up. And so the book specifically looks at Appleton, Minnesota, where a um, the city manager tried to lure a, ca- a casino, a furniture manufacturer, um, neither of which expressed enthusiasm for setting up shop in this town of Appleton, which is um, three hours west of St. Paul, and very very hard to get to from you know the, the, the state's capital. And the town was experiencing a recession in the early 90s, and the city officials were able to build a prison. And the idea was, you know, this would revive the town. This would create jobs. This would cause um, hotels to be built and restaurants to open up shops. And so the book details the struggle that the town has had um, year after year trying to fill the prison. Um, eventually, a court civic bought the prison and they expanded the prison. And it was booming for a while. The prison was full and... Uh, you know, Super 8 Motel opened up shop in the town, and um, you know the, the town's you know economic future was looking up. The uh, Corporation Core Civic was paying um, taxes to the town, and um, you know more people were moving in. And eventually, Core Civic had to shut down the prison. They just couldn't um fill it with the number of incarcerated people they needed to to run a profit to turn a profit. And the reason why you know Appleton um is such an important part of the book is because now Minnesota is faced with criminal justice uh, uh, prison population that's expanding and they don't have enough prison beds in the state. So they're looking at this prison that shut down um that's owned by Core Civic and it's compliant with the American Correctional Association standards, and it's ready to open up today, tomorrow. And I interviewed the mayor of the town. I interviewed other city officials, and I interviewed people who live in the town, all of whom are really hopeful that the prison will open up um, wow. because of its potential to revive the town's economy. And and that's a pretty significant um, inquiry when we examine the role of private prisons in America um, because this is different from a Walmart opening up or a big box, you know, another big box store. Um, This is a town that needs this prison um, for its economic future.
0: Right. So so it kind of comes down to like an ethical or moral question. Like, like what, what, what matters most, you know, uh, the increase of, you know, the mass incarceration or, the decline of the, of the economy of of a rural community, you know, that's dependent on a private prison.
1: Yes, and, you know, the moral questions are certainly central to this book. Um, you know, what are the moral implications of for-profit firms overseeing hundreds of thousands of inmates? And this is different from privatizing so many government services that we already privatized. We privatized you know, sewage um, services, we privatize trash collection, we privatize, you know, um, firefighting services. Um, but privatizing American punishment it is very different. Mm-hmm. And if we as a country have made a decision to deprive citizens of their liberty, um, should that be delegated mm-hmm. to contractually deputized private individuals or ought that remain in the hands of Public officials, mm-hmm. and that's a really important question that the book wrestles with. Um, yeah,
3: but that
1: this is the yeah. nature of punishment is very different from a lot of the other government services that we've privatized in that history.
0: Right, because you, 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 when, when you think about it, it gives a similar taste of like convict leasing, slavery in a sense. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the racial disparity in, the, in, the, in this, it just seems like another form of slavery, in a sense. And
1: the book looks at convict, convict leasing and sort of the commodification of incarcerated individuals since the country was founded. Um, and, and that's an important part of our history. And while we have moved away from convict leasing in this country, um, this idea that we're still buying and trading human beings it is very closely related to that and is part of that history. And, you know, perhaps because, um, you know, the history of America is so tainted with the way that we've treated African American individuals, um, and so tainted with, um, you know, racial implications around the criminal justice system. Oh, this doesn't sit well with a lot of people, you know, this idea of, um, Paying corporations to house people behind bars.
0: Yeah. So and, I, mm-hmm.
1: and that and the book explores those questions.
0: So how 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 are they even conceivable? Private prisons. Is there some benefit that I, there, I I'm assuming they see some kind of benefit versus state and government prisons? What are they saying to get these prisons built and contracted? What is the main benefit they're trying to sell? So the
1: way that these corporations emerged was amongst this this backdrop of over-incarceration and government's inability to safely downsize prison populations. If we didn't have that crisis of incarceration with so many prisons, um, overcrowded, unhygienic, Filled to the brim, these stories, these national headlines of escapes and riots and sexual assault, we might not have seen the private sector emerge so quickly in mm. the 1980s. Um, but but a lot, you know, if you read the early, um, if you read the the early annual reports and investor reports from these big corporations, they're pretty transparent about the idea that there's a market here, you know, most of the states were ramping up incarceration and just didn't have the capacity to house as many people as they were sending to to prisons, and, you know, this was seen as a market opportunity. Um, From the perspective of government, they don't have to build these prisons in most cases. A private corporation, you know, what was happening in the 80s and 90s was that these corporations were building prisons on spec, Mm. So they would build a prison, maybe in a rural area, without without having any idea of who would eventually be incarcerated there or whether they would even be able to sign a contract. Wow. And prison populations were climbing so quickly, it was a profitable venture because these corporations, in most cases, were able to sign these contracts. Wow. And the government didn't have to... build the prisons. They didn't have to raise bonds. They didn't have to um, raise taxpayer dollars specifically to build prisons. So it almost, um, you know, these corporations um, emerged as a safety valve Uh, for directors of corrections who didn't have to have these very tough conversations and discussions about whether incarceration was the right sanction for so many people who violated the criminal law.
0: So it kind of wipes their hands clean of um, being responsible for any kind of transparency and other factors that go into state and government kind of policies. So since they're dealing with something that's more privatized, they can say, look, we're doing what we have to do, right? (laughs) While, like you said, it's a safety valve to kinds of – keep the population, the, the, the public blinded in a sense.
1: Yes. And, you know, a lot of these facilities were brand new. So one of the problems that's always plagued uh, American corrections is that um, it's expensive to upkeep government mm. facilities. A lot of the prisons that exist today were built decades ago. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're not, um, you know, it, Rikers Island, um, you know, Rikers Island. You know, Rikers, the prison in New York City, mm-hmm. um, is mm-hmm. a really old facility. It's dark. There are very few windows. You would never build a jail like that today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that's one of the problems too with a lot of the um, state-owned, you know, federally-owned jails and prisons in this country is that they are old. Um, they can't house. As many individuals, um, you know, they're not set up for programming. They're not light. Um, you know, they're expensive to run and they're expensive to operate. Um, and these corporations are able to build these facilities that are new, and they're able to build them very quickly.
0: Well, wow. so why is there such, you know, a lack of transparency, and why is oversight so complicated for private prisons? Aren't The contract's, like, fulfilled by taxpayer money. So shouldn't we have some kind of disclosure or transparency of what's going on in in these facilities? How how did they get around that?
1: You're absolutely right. We should have more transparency in these facilities, and we don't. And the reason is because the government is, at the federal level, required to comply with the Freedom of Information Act Mm -hmm. law, which is um, known as FOIA. Mm -hmm. But the private sector is not required to comply with FOIA at the federal level. And at the state level, all states have some sort of open records law, sunshine law, where um, they are required to comply with open records requests from journalists, from lawyers, from citizens. But the problem is in most states in this country – The private sector is also, you know, similarly to what happens at the federal level. They're not required to comply with the same open records and disclosure requests. Um, Some states, through litigation, have started to require private prison corporations to comply with the same open records laws that the government prisons are are required to comply with. Mm. Um, But that's very slow. That's, That's a slow process. Um, this is only in a couple of states. Tennessee happens to be one of the states where um, you know, the court has ordered the private prison corporations to turn over the same documents that a government prison would be required to turn over. Um, there, there's no law um, in any state in the country that's specifically targeted at private private prison corporations, which is a little bit mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, you know, some of the state laws. Do um, indicate that any private entity, any private corporation that is um, acting as a government partner or um, you know performing government function, is required to c- comply with the same open records requests. Um, but it's only a handful of states that have even stated that. Mm. Um, and so the reason this is so significant and should be so troubling is that prisons in general and immigration detention centers are black boxes. Yeah. We don't know that much about what happens behind closed doors. <sighs> Journalists um, have always had trouble accessing these facilities. I know I had trouble um, accessing these private facilities for the book.
0: But it seemed like, and, what, what, what was it about you? cuz you you were able to get in what is it about some people able to gain access and talk to the management and so forth what what is it how how are you able to do something like that
1: So interestingly enough I was able to gain access to so many of these private prisons and private immigration detention centers not through the corporations themselves mm. but through government So I am I attempted to um, interview high-level officials at Core Civic and GeoGroup, and I attempted to, shat, you know, I asked if I could shadow some of their officials um, as they as we toured different prisons. Um, they ultimately did not grant me access. Uh, they did not invite me down to their headquarters to interview them or their staff.
0: What was their reason?
1: The way I was able to gain access was Ironically, through ICE itself,
0: um,
1: because the contract for these private immigration detention centers is with ICE. And I was able to gain access to the state private prisons through the government corrections. So Mm. I would um, contact um, the director of corrections in Colorado and New Mexico, in Louisiana, and they granted me access.
0: We'll be right back.
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah Yo, so this year I'm coming with all these accurate predictions Went from rapping with Evie to these rapid transitions I'm bringing these people together, I hope y'all don't evacuate the building Give me a chance to speak my mind, yo, I got some shit that got some feeling I flow so spoken wordish, look, don't be nervous, just accept it Cause this gon' be that history that changed the future forever This that evolved wisdom So every record, I gotta go get them And for the record, I ain't stopping until they downsize the prison systems But this the land of freedom, that's what they taught us, but you and me know hey, That's hey, some yo. bullshit, we come from this generational trauma I'm talking about these black fathers taking away from their kids' mama come on, man. Nah, we ain't trying to go back to the Ronald Reagan days They wanna charge us for a crime so they can treat us like a slave Fuck and I ain't making this up. Look what the loopholes say. So look, shout out to Obama. You did the best. No debate, and I think it's amazing for you and your family after legal segregation. on love. I can't keep living life this way. Always watching for the loopholes. Yeah, yeah. Land of the free, but we all got a price to pay. Gotta watch for the loopholes. Yeah. And they hate it when a young man got something to say.
0: Before we get to the show, I just want to say thank you for all of you out there who are supporting the show by clicking on the links and purchasing the music or the books. We appreciate you very much. And for all those who haven't and are thinking about supporting us, just go inside the show notes of each episode and click on the links to the songs or the books. And it takes you right to where you can purchase it. And it's a win win because you support the guests of the show um, and we get a small commission, which then goes toward to the operations of the show. So again, for all you who have supported us, thank you so much. And for all those who are thinking about supporting us, we appreciate you as well. All right. Peace. There's so much talk about mass incarceration there's so many people that are starting to realize how unjust this is, and there's all these movements to kind of transform the policies. Um, and it seems like uh, like with any business, they, tr- they, they have to change their business model or something might happen. It seems like although private prisons are still doing the prisons, they're also moving toward other things, and you kind of touched on it, the immigration detention centers and if you could talk about that a little and also <laughs> with someone like Trump in the White House how is how how is this affecting the private prison industry going into these immigration detention centers
1: So you are um absolutely right the private prison corporations are starting to read the tea leaves and realizing that a lot of states are starting to reduce their prison populations In fact, over the last decade, about 27 states reduced both crime and incarceration, and these corporations need to turn a profit, and so they're looking elsewhere beyond just warehousing people behind bars. So for years, they've been diversifying into owning and operating drug treatment centers Mm -hmm. and centers where people go for electronic monitoring and what are called halfway houses, which are facilities where individuals... May um, leave during the day to go to work, um, but but come back and um, stay at the facility at night. And wow. this tends to be towards the end of someone's sentences. Um, they are also diversifying internationally. Wow. So CoreCivic and GEO Group, and again, these are the two corporations um, that own and operate prisons that are publicly traded on the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. They have diversified and. They run prisons in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. And perhaps even most significantly, uh, the private prison corporations have really started to gain a foothold in the immigration detention uh, population. And you asked about President Trump and we've seen GeoGroup and CoreCivic stocks double since the election. And immigration detention is very profitable for these companies. In fact, um, 65% of the immigration detention beds um, under ICE are privatized in this country. So we have essentially privatized immigration detention. And in fact, in the 2018 budget, um, this administration asked for $1.2 billion to increase the number of detention beds in this country Right now, we have about you know twenty eight to thirty three thousand detention beds um, and the the budget requested this one point two billion to increase detention beds to over forty five thousand, which wow. is unprecedented yeah. and certainly indicates that we're going to be relying on the private prison industry even more in the future
0: mm-hmm. and you kind of touched on how the immigration detention centers are actually a little bit more profitable to the private prison industry than just prisons and its and if you could talk about why what what are some reasons why they really see see this as more of a lucrative place to go with their business model
1: One of the reasons is because these immigration detention centers provide very little programming. They're not required to by the federal government because the people behind bars there are civil detainees. Mm
0: -hmm. That means
1: they have not been convicted of breaking any criminal law in the country. Most of these people are there because they're seeking asylum or they've escaped their home country. Um, In fact, I interviewed a lot of immigrant detainees in these Mm -hmm. facilities as I was researching the book. And many of them told me, you know, they crossed the border and they walked into the marshals, or they walked into the Border Patrol office with their hands up Mm -hmm. instead of seeking asylum. Mm -hmm. And what happens is they're then, you know, um, transferred over to an immigration detention center again. Most of these are private. And they don't engage in a lot of programming at all, barely any. And when I walked around these facilities, I saw people sitting on bunk beds um, watching TV for most of the day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes these detainees will work, and they might get paid a dollar a day to mop the floors, or if they're lucky, $3 a day to fold laundry or work in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But the reason they're so profitable is because these corporations are warehousing people behind bars, and they're not performing – um, you know they're not providing a lot of programming. Yeah. Um, they're not providing educational support, and it's a it's a very profitable business venture um, because they're paid per person and they're not providing a lot of services to those people.
0: Wow. Yeah. And they I don't I don't know do do they have the 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 immigrants do they have legal representation is that even a thing?
1: They have legal representation, but not, um, every person who's detained doesn't necessarily get to see a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, one of the facilities I was in, there, there was a courtroom in the facility, mm-hmm. and there was an immigration judge in the facility. Now, this is not a private immigration judge, this is a federal immigration judge. Oh. But what's interesting about the courtroom process in these detention centers is that the, um, so the, detention center i was in was owned by the geo group and there's someone in a uh, correctional uniform that says geo group who's standing in the courtroom uh taking the papers from the judge or the judge's clerk and giving the papers to (laughs) the uh, immigrant detainee who's Mm -hmm. having the hearing and it's really this um just very illustrative scene yeah. that shows how entrenched right. the private sector is in American corrections and American detention. That you know they're even part of the courtroom scene.
0: Isn't that detention one? Centers. Isn't that one of the reasons why it's going to be hard to get rid of the prison industrial complex? Because it seems like there's such a revolving door. People who work in government can end up working in the private sector and so forth. Is it, I mean, isn't this kind of problematic?
1: That revolving door is something that's common in most industries right. where former government officials will then join the private sector, especially if um, you know this is common with police officers. Uh, they may retire early. They have a pension for life, and so they may go into security or they may take a private sector job uh, that's related to policing. The reason it's so worrisome when we talk about the revolving door in the private prison industry is because that revolving door perpetuates more people behind bars. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is um, these for-profit prisons will recruit former corrections officials at the state and federal level who have contacts in the state, who have contacts in the federal BOP, in the Justice Department. And... Those people, you know, working for the private sector are certainly going to be incentivized to um, privatize more. Right. And if they have those connections with government officials and the government officials trust them, the government officials might be inclined to privatize more of corrections.
0: Right. I think that I think this is so strange. Like, there's so much conflict of interest, and government's always talking about with certain inter- industries when it comes to conflict of interest the things you can't do. But then, on the other hand, these revolving doors—it it just does not make sense. <laughs> the, all, all the little loopholes they find to keep stuff like this going is just mind-boggling.
1: And you know, it's interesting when I started to research the book, um, I started to look at how private prisons are important, where they're important, and it's in these relationships that they're so important. Mm. It's in the state house where former corrections officials who are now working for the private sector are meeting with policymakers, um, are meeting with directors of corrections. And it's these relationships that help to perpetuate increased prison populations. Mm. And, you know, the book has a lot of these touchstones where um, decisions were made to increase prison populations or send more people to private prisons, and you know, a lot of them at the end of the day are connected to uh, these close-knit relationships between the private sector and the government.
0: So, you kind of touched upon how um, these uh, private prison corporations are traded on Wall Street, and I know some some people have heard about the prison divestment movement. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, what is the strategy and what are their goals?
1: The divestment movement is a really um, interesting campaign that is occurring all across the country right now. And the book looks at divestment campaigns at universities as well as city government. And I interviewed a lot of students across the country who were very involved in divestment campaigns. Some of them were at Columbia University, which became the first university in the country to completely divest from the private prison industry. And this was a, a very much a student-led campaign. You know, they marched into the president's office and they demanded that Columbia divest from the private prison industry. Uh, it's really interesting that the president wasn't in his office at the time, so they read a letter to his secretary. Um, and I, I asked a lot of these students uh, who were at different college campuses, why this? You're know, you, you you're busy, you have a lot of schoolwork, you're involved in sports. You know, why divestment campaigns? Why this cause? And to a lot of the students, um, they felt that by even – paying their tuition at their university, that they were complicit in creating mass incarceration uh, if their university had any financial holdings in the private prison industry. And the students were very passionate about this. Um, You know, the book notes this is sort of the new civil rights um, campaign Mm -hmm. of student groups. And recently, New York City and Philadelphia have both divested their city pension funds from the private prison industry. And the city of Portland divested from all corporations, not just private prisons. Uh So this is definitely a trend that we're seeing across the country right now. Unfortunately, I don't think it will necessarily make an impact on the corporation's bottom line. It's because... the, the. the universities divesting and some of these city pension funds divesting, they send a message. They certainly build momentum. They certainly raise the issue of, um, the immorality that a lot of people feel is involved in private corporations being involved in corrections. But to really make a difference, we need, um, we need some of the, you know, these bigger, um, funds to divest. So for example, um, Vanguard has a lot of holdings mm. in the private prison industry, mm-hmm. and you know- men, m- much more than uh let's say Columbia University they own enormous amount of stock and if they make a difference if they if they divest, it might make a difference and mm-hmm. for example um as of late two thousand and fifteen, Vanguard held fourteen percent of c c a stock valued at four hundred and forty seven wow. million mm-hmm. So we're really going to need you know if this divestment campaign is is going to make a difference, we're going to need some of these n- major you know huge money management funds to rethink their investment strategy.
0: We'll be right back. <music>
2: Frankenstein a horror Like black men with all white jurors They tried to take my power Instead they made a monster be small, beast mode. My whole empire black like Lucius. But technical. We gon' retire, man, Samusa. They mutin' these made a mutant. Theories of evolution. Adversities made me Hercules. We gotta be superhuman to deal with what they doing. They don't know what they doing. With future poems and future songs, we keep that Metro booming. They treatin' me, they treatin' me like I'm an ex-sport They sell me off the jail. They sit me off the floor. They don't treat me like a man.
3: Unless I'm playing sports, unless I wear they jersey, unless I wear they shorts. They talk about my mama, they talk about my cousin they talk about my sister, they talk about my bros,
2: that make me gonna get that, get that gun in and pull that, and pull that trigger back in, and make that shit go blue. Now, if you take the fist of a fighter, the brain of a scholar, the heart of a lion, and put it with some animosity,
3: this is
0: so, what you get. So you, you work with the Brendan Center and you're, you're around trying to find solutions to help uh reduce the lead, need or eliminate, um if if I got this correctly, eliminate private prisons or and just kind to kind of reduce mass incarceration or eliminate um eliminate mass incarceration so what are some of the solutions that you or others or your colleagues talk about to help decrease this dilemma
1: so at the brendan center i work to reduce the number of people who are behind bars in this country and we issued a report at the end of last year called How Many Americans Are Unnecessarily Incarcerated. Mm. The report found that about 40% of Americans don't need to be behind bars.
0: 40%?
1: 40% when we look at uh, public safety. And there are a lot of ways we can start reducing mass incarceration. We're sitting on top of four decades of evidence at this point that more and more incarceration does not make us safer. Mm. Sending people away from their families, their communities, putting them behind bars, with very little programming, doesn't reduce recidivism. Mm -hmm. And there's evidence to that effect. Recidivism rates in this country are close to 75%. Wow. That means about three quarters of people who are released from prison return to prison within three years. Wow. So. That's very good evidence that incarceration is not working and it's not making us safer. Some people are not receiving the educational programming, the mental health services, the drug treatment services that they need behind bars. And in fact, this book makes recommendations that the private corporations that own and operate these prisons, they need to start beating the government's lousy recidivism rates. Mm -hmm. We're letting these corporations make a profit off of incarceration, why are we not asking them to reduce recidivism rates better than the government is right.
0: doing? Right. Since why we're talking we about privatization. Asking? Yeah. If it's privatized, the holding is that's Wait, supposed what? to be better, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. And where is that innovation that the yeah. corporations promised four decades ago? So the book ultimately takes the practical lens that we are living in um, 2017. President Trump is, is, Our president, Attorney General Sessions, runs the Justice Department. We have seen the administration continue to rely on private prisons. Mm -hmm. So let's look at how we can reform these places, these prisons, these detention centers, while thousands of people are behind bars at these facilities. And uh, some of the suggestions are, let's require these corporations to reduce recidivism rates. Mm -hmm. Let's write that into the contracts. Let's... Uh, find these corporations more than we're finding them today. Mm. What happens is a lot of these corporations find it cheaper to violate their contract wow. and yeah. um, not hire enough correctional officers because it's actually more cost-effective for them to pay the government fines than it might be for them to hire enough correctional officers. Mm. Now, it's not always so purposeful. It's we have a shortage of corrections officers all across the country in government-run facilities and private facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're not incentivized to hire enough correctional officers because in many cases the fines are actually cheaper than the
0: salaries. Wow. I mean, that that makes perfect sense. I I (laughs) mean, you know, recidivism rates being so high, you are a private company, innovation should be part of the key, that is a good solution. I mean, to reduce recidivism rates, I, I think that's a big goal. And um, how is that? Is, is that being considered in Congress at all? Is Or is that just going to take a bigger fight? How, how is that looking?
1: We are not doing enough to incentivize these private contractors to innovate, to reduce recidivism, to improve programming, to yeah. focus on job creation for those who are going to be reentering society, the community. Mm-hmm. There are bills at the federal level that have not moved much past their committees. that um, have been introduced year after year to improve transparency and accountability at uh, private prisons, to eliminate private prisons. Um, to hold their feet to the fire a little bit more. Um, the bills just never move past committee. And I think at the end of the day, uh, we need a multi-pronged approach to reduce recidivism in this country. Mm-hmm. But we need to at least start with these contracts. Mm-hmm. And if we're asking the private sector to be in charge of so many people who are behind bars, it's really incumbent upon our the government to rewrite those contracts and tell these corporations, we will not let you operate these facilities if you don't improve programming, if you don't reduce recidivism rates. And other countries are starting to experiment with that, and and that's why we know this can be done. In New Zealand, uh, there is a private prison um, where the government of New Zealand has written into the contract that the corporation that owns it and runs it will actually receive a bonus if it can reduce the recidivism rate of certain females who are incarcerated at that facility. So we're starting to see other countries, and Australia also has some of these what are called performance-based contracts mm. where the contractor would receive additional funds, bonus money, if they meet some of these benchmarks and milestones. And we're not seeing that innovation in the United States, and mm. we really need to. Wow.
0: Wow yeah i wonder I would like to hear the outcomes of that because I know other industries like hospitals are doing the same thing where they are getting incentivized for keeping people out of the hospital you know um, so that that'd be interesting to see how that moves forward in that regards but it seems with with our government right now, it seems like there's someone in that in in there that is seems like that's all for privatization of this. So it's going to be pretty hard during this administration to kind of move forward with things like that. What what can the average citizen do in regards to this?
1: That's a question that a lot of people ask, and I think there are many ways that people can raise these issues to policymakers. Uh, You know, anyone can pick up the phone and call their state legislator or their city council representative and ask about, you know, transparency requirements Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to these private prisons. Um, At the local level, people can, can get involved in divestment campaigns at schools, divestment campaigns at the city level, at the state level. Mm -hmm. Um, At the federal level, constituents can call their policymakers, meet with our policymakers, and urge them to introduce legislation to improve transparency and accountability in these prisons. Um, There are a lot of ways to sort of raise this issue. And I think something that is really important and one of the reasons why I wrote the book is just to continue to engage people in this conversation um, some people don't know that private prisons exist, that, these, right. that we have let corporations run and operate prisons. A lot of people have um, you know, no awareness that these corporations own, the, own and run and operate the majority of immigration detention beds in this country, that we've essentially privatized immigration detention. Right. So I think continuing to have these conversations is really important um at all levels, and certainly um, people can engage their local policy makers on these issues.
0: Yeah. So how has writing this book changed you in any sense?
1: I really like that question because in writing this book, I interviewed a lot of incarcerated individuals at private prisons. I interviewed families of incarcerated individuals, formerly incarcerated individuals, And some of them told me that the time they spent in these private facilities wasn't so bad and, Mm. in fact, was better than the time they spent at private facilities. Wow, wow. why? Partly because some of these individuals felt that they were, you know, left alone a little bit more. They weren't watched Mm. um, as closely because these private prisons were understaffed. Oh,
3: um,
1: but at the end of the day, I asked everyone I interviewed what it meant to them that they were in a private prison. Did they think about it? Did they think about people making money off of them? Did it not even occur to them? And every single person I spoke to said they were um, really distraught when they thought of someone making Money off of their incarceration. Mm-hmm. One of the women who I interviewed for the book, who had spent time at a private facility, um, you know, she said, "I'm shocked that prisons became private without really a large national debate." I felt like it happened under the nose of the public. Mm-hmm. And you know, what sort of hope is there for us? What sort of hope is there for the criminal justice system getting fixed if private companies are now making money off of incarceration? Wow. And that theme was echoed um, throughout my conversations with formerly incarcerated individuals. But at the end of the day, and the book advocates to improve conditions of confinement and programming and rewrite contracts and request and require that corporations reduce recidivism rates. But we still are faced with this issue of, you know, are private prisons moral? And even if we do improve conditions of confinement, even if we do rewrite these contracts and reduce recidivism rates, what does it say about our society that we have completely outsourced punishment, you know, the care, clothing of human beings behind bars? And that's a really important issue to wrestle with.
0: Yeah. Wow. So what do you want us to mainly take away from this book?
1: The book asks a lot of questions, and I would like the reader to come away from the book more aware of how entrenched the private sector is Mm -hmm. in American corrections, Um, but I would also like the reader to come away with hope that we can improve conditions of confinement in America, that we can improve transparency and access in both public and private prisons, and I would really like people to continue to engage in these discussions and think about you know, Have we gone too far in privatization? You know, there are corporations like JPay. People mm-hmm. call call JPay the Apple of the prison system. Wow. And the company makes money off of email services, video conferencing services, but it's expensive. So a lot of the incarcerated individuals I spoke to said they didn't have seven, eight, nine, ten dollars that it cost to video conference home to their family. Mm. I emailed a lot of incarcerated individuals for research and as I was writing this book it was fifty five cents to send an email. Wow. And I would enclose a stamp so they could email me back, but that's a lot of money yeah. for people who who don't you may not be earning anything behind bars. Um, you know, these these are, are it's really important that we raise awareness of how vast this prison industrial complex is and ask questions about whether this, all of these corporations that make so much money off of incarceration will be a huge impediment in reducing prison populations. And, and those are important questions.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, you brought up a good good point about the J-Pay um, because I think that might kind of lead to high recidivism rates because sometimes when the people get out, most of them are the poor. And I I think they also have, like, um, bills or debt that they had to pay back to the prisons, right? <laughs> and that can kind of lead them right back in again in a sense, right? All these people who have a hand in making money off of the people incarcerated in there sometimes goes against them and puts them right back in their predicament again. Isn't that kind of correct?
1: Yes, and all of this criminal justice debt um, is a barrier uh, to, to reentry, right, because the debt piles up and people um, – they end up back in jail or prison because they owe the sum of this criminal justice debt, and, and they're huge burdens on family members of mm-hmm. incarcerated individuals. And you know, a company like JPay, where you know, a thirty-minute video visitation session might cost ten dollars. Um, that's a lot of money yeah. for um, for those behind bars and for their families. And JPay now partners with many states to process supervision fee payments. And they, you know, they have kiosks or online, and they collect fees for all of these transactions. So these corporations um, are—they're profiting off of those behind bars and the family members. And you know, all of these um, corporations—they—they are a significant barrier to real work that the country needs to do to
0: yeah. downsize prison populations. Yeah. Well, Lauren Brook Eisen, please keep up with the work. Um, we need people like you to help reduce mass incarceration and, you know, improve the way prisons operate and um, and take care of uh, inmates. And I uh, just want to say we appreciate you for being on Books Beats and Beyond.
1: Thank you so much for your great questions, and it was great talking
0: to you. You too. If you want to purchase the book or any of the music, I've included links in the show notes, or you could just go to booksbeatsandbeyond.com. And, you know, what's cool is by clicking on the links, you support the guests, the music artists, and uh, we get a small commission, which is no extra cost to you which we will then put toward the operations of this show. Um, And also, please click on the iTunes link to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And if you do this stuff already, I just want to say thank you so much for your support. Remember, let's read, listen, explore.